Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Everybody. Welcome to Who Cares About the Rock Hall, a podcast about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I'm your host, Joe Quazala. I know entirely too much about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and that's a shame. I didn't intend to rhyme, but there we go. With me, as always, via Zoom video chat is somebody <laughs> who does not care about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, uh, but she still does this for some reason. It's Kristen Stuttered. Hi, Kristen. Hello. You know, that's also a shame. Right. Not, not sh- quite... Uh, clean of a rhyme there but yeah but it is a shame to not care and still spend so much time speaking about something that I actively dislike beautiful Uh, and let's bring in our guest very excited to have him with us he's an author a scholar a professor at USC the self-proclaimed documentary king because if you have seen any documentary about pop culture uh, in the past I don't know how many years you have seen his face. You've heard him talk. He's an authority to say the least, uh, whether it's 20 feet from stardom, the last dance, sound breaking, the CNN documentaries. We're happy to have him. The notorious PhD himself, Dr. Todd Boyd. Hi, Todd. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. So first things first, I know that the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame exists in the periphery for a lot of people. It's not something that people really think about or focus on. I'm curious if you have any connection to the hall or thoughts about it. Um, I have uh, no connection to it. And um, unless someone calls me to speak on it, uh, I don't have (laughs) anything to say about it uh, on its own. But uh, of course, I'm familiar with it. Yeah, I'm surprised that you're not a voter. You know, based, based on the documentaries that I've seen, you appear to be a voice of authority on a lot of different subjects, specifically music. And I, I do think it's weird that you're not on the voting block. Well, thank you very much. Um, no one has ever asked me to uh, vote. Maybe they think they wouldn't like the way I would vote, but I have not gotten that call. Um, I talk to people all the time and they say, I'm surprised you're not doing this. I'm surprised you're not doing that. <laughs> I'm not a voter, uh, at least not this time. Maybe after this podcast. Yeah, we hold a lot of sway. We'll never reach out. (laughs) Yeah, maybe it'll happen. Maybe this will be the big break that gets you that ballot. I mean, I'd love it if you got a ballot. I would you would you care? Like, would you take a lot? Like, would that be something you'd be interested in is voting on on the nominees every year? I mean, you know, I think. to call it the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, I have some uh, 
issues with that. I consider myself uh, like a Michelin star. So uh, you want to, you know, amp up your uh, voting body and be able to demonstrate to people that you're serious and substantive, then maybe I need to be in the mix. <laughs> That's, you hear that, Hall? A Michelin star also, what an excellent way uh, to define oneself. I really, I, I like it and I would love to feel one day that I could be a Michelin star. I can think of myself as a Michelin star. You said, yeah, you have some thoughts just about like the concept of it even being called the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, et cetera. Um, I, you know, I guess that's why we're here to discuss, right? Yeah. Uh, not, tr not trying to step on anybody's toes, but um, I mean, first of all, when you talk about rock and roll, what are you talking about? Like the roots of rock and roll um, and what rock and roll means to most people when they hear that phrase now are two very different things. So, you know, there's the issue of the roots and issues of appropriation and such. And um, I think this moment in the 70s, perhaps maybe it starts in the mid 60s, when rock and roll um, is represented as white, in spite of the fact that it is something that grows out of various examples of black music. Um, but the 70s maybe seems to be the high point of rock and roll. And, you know, there was a lot of money and media attention, you know, surrounding rock and roll. And so subsequently there's a rock and roll hall of fame, which, you know, is fine. But to think of rock and roll as the center of American music, you know, is to me problematic because that's inconsistent with its history. So I respect it for what it is, but I also look at the historical origins and uh, social and political components of it. I mean, honestly, at this point in time, is, is rock and roll still that relevant? Maybe from a historical standpoint, but you know, when you're talking about putting people in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, I don't know that Biggie Smalls going in the Hall of Fame is really a signature moment in terms of his overall body of work, but you appreciate the recognition nonetheless. So it is what it is. Um, yeah, we talk about that on the show a lot, the turning point and, and like, because, you know, rock and roll got whitewashed from the beginning, from Elvis, from, you know, Pat Boone, like the, the 50s, it began in the 50s, even just like the co-opting and the, um, you know, appropriation and stuff. But I, yeah, I, when you think of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame or think of rock and roll the way we think of it now, yeah, you think of like white men with guitars in the late 60s and throughout the 70s. And then, yeah, it's like in the 70s, then they, you know, even the divergence of disco and soul and funk and everything being like specifically offshot and different from rock and roll and like rock and roll being tuned in to be predominantly about white culture or dare I say even the term white culture, <laughs> but like, but like, you know, and, and like when that happened, but we talk a lot about on the show, yeah, does rock even, or rock and roll have relevance now? And we talk about rock and roll used to mean like counterculture, the music that would piss your parents off. And that now is rap. And like that now is hip hop music. And so the term rock and roll, like what does it mean? Why does, should it be the music hall of fame? Does, does it help Biggie to be in the rock and roll hall of fame in some way? Does it help the, or does it help the rock hall to have him? The, the, the question is open. 
it's funny to think about that because uh, rock and roll as the music to piss your parents off is funny because, you know, those people are parents now and maybe even grandparents. Mm-hmm. And their, you know, children or grandchildren have been listening to hip hop for perhaps over 30 years. So, you know, it's not even a new thing. Um, it's been going on for a while. I was, uh, I was teaching a graduate seminar at USC. This was, I'd say, eight or nine years ago. And, um, you know, it's USC, USC Film School. I'm in this, you know, graduate seminar. And, uh, you know, it is overwhelmingly like upper middle class and rich white kids in graduate school at USC Film School. And almost to a person, they all said, this is the music I would listen to because it would piss my parents off. And, um, you know, based on their age and everything at the time, we're talking about, you know, people in the early 90s, um, maybe throughout the 90s. And I mean, I'm of the generation that created hip hop. I've been connected to it from jump in some way or another directly or indirectly so it was kind of interesting for me to be in that situation and I'm like okay like you know this culture of hip-hop has you know sort of connected people based on wanting to rebel against their parents and what better way to rebel against your parents if you're white and live in the suburbs and listen to this music that's coming out of you know the inner city um that's pushing all these buttons and boundaries so you know, rock and roll at this point, when I would mention this to certain people, they'd quickly say, and I'm speaking of, you know, certain white people, that I don't listen to that. Um, that's my parents. I mean, they were offended that almost, they weren't offended, but it was like they wanted to make clear that that's not how they wanted to be identified, that, you know, they made fun of, like, their parents for listening to it. I have a very close friend, and his son, you know, often says to me, I'm just trying to get my dad to listen to something other than the Grateful Dead. Like, so that generational split, now, you know, all these people I'm referring to are in their, you know, mid to late 30s, if not early 40s. So it's been going on for a while. Um, So that's why rock and roll to me sounds kind of historical when I hear it. Yeah, I mean, like, we talk about this too, like the rock as a genre is not that popular anymore. Or like we've talked about this, Joe, like radio stations in LA. Like I can name four or five hip hop and rap stations. I can name two rock stations, maybe. Maybe. And but they're you know, they're I can literally it's like K Rock and 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 yeah, and there's even a And then there's that one, the other one. I mean, oh, there, there's that two, was not the yeah. one I was thinking of. No, the Alt-98.7. Alt, Alt That's like, the one. <laughs> even there, there's a, there's a divide between, you know, what was kind of the, the basis for, or the foundation for a lot of the rock was classic rock. And, you know, LA used to have two of those. And then now one has been folded into Christian music, which it, I don't know if there's a, a metaphor there, but it, yeah, the the idea of and we and you said rock right you didn't say rock and roll because the, oh yeah i forgot about joe's theory <laughs> i do think there, there's a split where you lose the role and then you're you're losing you know the kind of sam cook little richard side of of rock and roll you're then you're focusing on rock and then you go down this british invasion path and then you 
you lose the soul, you lose the R&B. But I think that role used to, I think the role used to mean something. Joe, Joe thinks the role was like the soul of, of rock and roll. Like if you just have rock, it's just like a stupid white guy with a guitar. But if you have, you have to have the role in it to give it a little bit of soul, to give it a little uh, depth, flavor, I think if at you one will. point, maybe that was true. I often uh, think about somebody like Louis Jordan. To me, Louis Jordan is really the maybe the beginning of what would eventually become rock and roll. It was rocking. It was rocking. You never see that scuffling and shuffling till the break of dawn. People, you know, would refer to Little Richard and Fast Domino, and they came later. But if you listen to Louis Jordan. Even somebody like Big Joe Turner, Shake, Rattle, and Roll. I mean, the roots of it were in, you know, blues and R&B music and then various appropriations of that over time. But of course, you know, it takes a while for that to fully develop. When I think of rock, rock and roll seems like a phrase from another time, even rock, but rock and, yeah, there seems to be a difference, I guess. You rock know. with a hard K, rock. I remember having a conversation with uh, Elvin Jones. Elvin Jones was John Coltrane's drummer on those uh, amazing Impulse records that Coltrane made in the early to mid 60s. And I remember having a conversation with Elvin Jones once back in the 90s. And Elvin was telling me this moment when jazz musicians were taking notice that jazz radio stations were kind of dying out. And there were more, as he would say, rock and roll stations. And the way he used it, that phrase was like all encompassing. It almost referred to anything that wasn't jazz. But then, you know, as somebody who grew up in the 70s, when I think about rock, that's that's sort of the, the center point for me. Uh, 70s, I guess, and maybe into the, through the 90s probably. But the 70s seems to be a moment when, you know, that was kind of at its high point maybe. I'm thinking certainly before MTV, which kind of changed the game up a little bit in terms of the visual component. Um, I spoke on this, you know, a few weeks ago, if anybody's seen the uh, I Want My MTV documentary. Um, you know, so I guess before videos got to be so popular, there's that era, but it lasted um, through that and then it started to change. I would like to, uh, you, you touched on this very briefly, but I would like to, you know, start talking about hip-hop and you had mentioned that you were directly or indirectly somewhat present at hip-hop's birth or rise i'm, I'm curious uh what you mean by that well um i'm not from new york I'm, I'm from detroit um people credit new york with the place where hip-hop started and, and in a real technical sense i guess that's true but the the seeds of hip-hop were planted in black communities all over the country. And it just took a while before those things manifest themselves. But New York, you know, would have the sort of cultural infrastructure to uh, help distribute that um, in ways that it took longer for some other places. But, you know, I was in 10th grade when I heard Rapper's Delight. And um, that's really the beginning of the music for a lot of people, particularly if you don't live in New York. I mean, for people who were living in New York and hanging out at those parties in the South Bronx and everything, that's different, but that's a 
relatively small group of people. Like, you know, if the music had only stayed there and never went any place, it wouldn't have gotten nearly as big, but of course it would spread. So when I was in college, I was, I was an MC. Um, but I am from the generation I often tell people now, when I was spitting, as it were, um, this was the era, you know, when... What the, did you go by? I'm sorry, I hate to interrupt, but what was your MC name? It wasn't Notorious PhD yet, I'm sure. Notorious B.I.G. hadn't even come on mm -hmm. for many years when this happened. I was known as Real. That was my name, you know. Nice. Uh, <laughs> Real on the wheels of steel. Um, okay. So, <laughs> you know, real deal. Um, you know, uh, feel so real. Anything, with, I was real. And if you encounter anybody from that time in my life, that's what they're going to, uh, they probably know my name now. But if you said my name for a long time, they might look at you crazy. But if you said real, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But when I was, you know, doing my thing in college, it wasn't really about rhyming as much it was as it was about um, you know moving the crowd, getting the crowd hype. It was it was that era. I often say to people, like MC, like master of ceremonies, like you know, like crowd control, yeah, microphone controller, the whole mm -hmm. bit. You know, there's a point you could talk about Melly Mel, you know, with Grandmaster Flash, and later when you get to DMC, and then especially Rakim. Rakim, I think, is a turning point, but you've got to kind of reference Melly Mel, too, on the message and white lines and all those songs. But my thing was, like, you know, I'm an MC, but the era when I was doing this, I didn't know anybody who was thinking about this as a way to make a living. I didn't know anybody who was doing this, like, you know, this is going to be my job. It was, to me, like, this is, like, Something fun you do in college, you throw parties and people come to your parties and you get a rep for being the dude on the mic and, you know, maybe you might meet some girls or whatever. It's like that, you know, real kind of juvenile um, approach to like trying to express yourself through music. And that's really what I was doing. And I was always into music, making mixtapes and everything like this. But then there's a certain point when it got serious and dudes were <laughs> doing this, like I'm a rapper. Like there, I, this became part of their identity and I was, you know, trying to go to graduate school and stuff by that point. So, um, but I always say I'm of that sort of first generation, um, you know, of people who have been there dealing with the culture really from the jump right after mm -hmm. that, you know, initial period when it's like, you know, strictly in New York. And so now, you know, I'm, I'm much older, um, but people are often surprised, you know, that I can talk about the music the way that I can. And I'm like, you know, long before you were even conceived, um, I was like doing this. So that's, that's my connection to it, you know, mm -hmm. back then was being an MC in that era when it was about like moving the crowd. Um, once people started rhyming, not that I couldn't rhyme, but I was never the, you know, stand in a cipher and spit a freestyle. Like I, I, I'm before that era. I kind of wish I had maybe been, you know, more serious about it, but you know, I think it turned out all right nonetheless. Yeah, you're doing okay. Uh, did you happen to cross paths with anyone of note back in your MC days? No, because as I say, um, you know, at the time, this is the early to mid 80s. 
and New York is where hip hop is really located at that time. Um, and I didn't go to New York until a while after that. Mm-hmm. But thinking back on it, it's like, I, I, I'm telling, uh, I told this story in a documentary. Of course. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but there's a, a, a documentary I was interviewed for on Rick James that's coming on perhaps later this year or next year. I'm not exactly sure of the date. And one of the things, one of the stories I told was about being a freshman in college. And um, I went to the University of Florida in Gainesville. So I'm, I'm a freshman in the University of Florida. And it's 1982. And so think about 1982. This is the year of Thriller. It is also Prince, uh, 1999. And so as you would go to people's uh, dorm rooms, some people had Thriller. A lot of people had Thriller, I should say. Uh, Some people had Thriller in 1999. I had neither because I was listening to Africa Bombada and Grandmaster Flash. And that's the music me and my crew were into. Like that other music was too popular. Um, And, you know, I was the type, still am, I guess, where it's like if everybody else is going right, I'm going to go left. Um, Just on GP. So, you know, I think about those moments, there's a lot of rock and roll being played, you know, so you go to a party and nobody's really playing hip hop. There's no hip hop stations. So somebody had the 12 inch, you know, their mixtapes, um, but you had to really seek the music out at that time because it wasn't everywhere. People were listening to other things. A few years after that, it changed, but in that moment, it was kind of dedicated to more popular forms of music and and hip hop was really just starting to bubble really in its earliest stages. And so, you know, I I think about that era as the era when really true hip hop heads are being born because, you know, I mean, much respect to Michael and Prince, but that music just, if all those people were into it, then to me, it just couldn't be that good. Just basically. (laughs) You're like, look at these corny people. (laughs) I'm not like like that. (laughs) Like, you know, I'm sorry. And you know, maybe I'm not sorry, but it's like the masses do not have good taste. Um, If you are invested in like good taste, you're not going to find it in the masses (laughs) um you know there are those rare occasions when something extremely popular is really good as well really substantive but well i mean i think it's interesting that you hold up thriller and 1999 which i think of as like being times when the culture got it right like when people were like yeah this is good and it's popular i think prince is is good and popular it's good popular music it's good popular music for what Trading it is. Trading on a curve for popular music. <laughs> I mean, look, you know, I mean, we're talking about legends. I mean, you know, Michael's a legend. Quincy Jones is a legend. Quincy's catalog is bigger than Thriller, obviously, but, and so is Michael. Michael, Quincy, Prince, these people are legends. So, uh, you know, I feel differently about them now, but I'm not somebody who gets excited about Thriller. I mean, that's not <laughs> sophisticated enough to like, that's not cool enough to say, you know, oh, wow, Thriller, like, you're not going to get any, like, brownie points for liking Thriller. Come on. 
Um, <laughs> there is no, yeah, there's no street cred for liking Thriller. Nobody's no, impressed that that's in album. your collection. <laughs> like, <laughs> no, that's, wow. that's to be expected. But I mean, you know, whatever. Like, you couldn't avoid that music, especially back then. And MTV was new, so like, I loved MTV because even though they were, you know, racist in terms of not playing videos by black artists generally, Michael was the exception. Um, and then that changed over time. I talk about this in that documentary I mentioned um, as well. But, you know, I mean, you couldn't escape that music. It was, it was everywhere. And you hear it enough, it becomes part of your own personal soundtrack. Same with, you know, same with Prince, but, what I'm saying is, if I heard like, you know, Soul Sonic Force, Planet Rock. If I heard the message, especially the message, I mean, I love that. Still do. Don't push me, cause I'm close to the edge. I'm trying not to lose my head. <laughs> it's like a jungle sometimes. It makes me wonder how I keep from going under. <laughs> it's like a jungle sometimes. It makes me wonder how I keep from going under. <laughs> Later when I heard It's Like That by DMC, um, I would go to parties and just kind of wait and hope <laughs> that they would play that song. If I was, you know, like, participating if I was on the mic then it was gonna get played but going to other people's parties like you've got to play it and then DMC would come on and like people would like start having talking or whatever having conversations uh -oh. and something else would come on Michael would come on and they'd be back on the dance floor I was always kind of I'm not a dancer you know I'm on some old Fred Astaire shit I don't dance, don't <laughs> ask me. Um, so the dance thing never did much for me I was more into like rhymes and you know, beats and, and that whole bit. So, but you know, I mean, that's a part of my life. I can't deny it. It just wasn't my thing. Yeah. It was funny because Run DMC did get massively popular. Uh, did that, did that color your opinion of them? Like when they became big, were you, were you off that I mean, and you're on to the next thing? The thing with DMC is like they did that song with Aerosmith, which I that's hate. What I was just going to say it's <laughs> a, that, that that's probably the turning point. <laughs> I mean, I like DMC, like I'm the king of rock, rock box, all that, like, you know, sucker MCs. It's like that. Like, I loved all that. When they did that song with Aerosmith, though, I'm like, you know, this is this is about money. They're trying to make money. <laughs> understand I grew up uh, my father was a, a jazz dude so the sort of lineage my father's of the bebop generation and I would be in the car with my dad this is in the 70s and there was a jazz station in Detroit called WJZZ they played like straight ahead jazz for a while and then they started playing fusion and sort of light jazz whatever and I'd be in the car with my father and you know, I remember they played Gene Carn, Don't Let It Go To Your Head. I love that song. Now that you know how I feel about you, 
my dad was like, why are they playing this bullshit? Um, <laughs> it's a jazz station. Like, fuck, don't let it go to your head. And I was like amused by it because he was really worked up. He was upset. And I'm like, why are you so upset? And he's like, you know, they're getting rid of all these jazz stations. Same thing Elvin was saying. <laughs> they're getting rid of all these jazz stations playing this bullshit. So I always found that to be really funny. But hearing it so much, it kind of informed the way I looked at music. And so I'm like, okay, DMC's trying to make some money by doing this song with Aerosmith. I'm going to ignore that and I'm going to listen to the music that, you know, I like um, that they do. But that was, to me, a point when they kind of went in another direction. And if you think about it, DMC is really not, they're, they're big at that moment, but a short time thereafter, they kind of start to decline a bit. Mm -hmm. Well, and the concept it, over the years has changed, like the concept of selling out has changed the idea that even, that it used to be such a bad thing. <laughs> And now I think that, you know, kids these days, like, like everyone is just like, it's not like everyone's like, yeah, trying to do their spawn con, their sponsored content, like, you know, getting a commercial, trying, getting yeah. a commercial, get, a movie, get the yeah. money, getting a movie, it doesn't matter. And people don't necessarily even call them on that. There isn't that feeling of like, oh man, you sold out or you're just, yeah, I don't know. It, it's like not as... It used to, I, I mean, in the 90s, especially, too, kind of people were just like, don't ever sell out, man. Stay poor forever. No one should ever know your music. I mean, you know, people can impose those kind of limitations at any time. I mean, I think there's selling out and then there's buying in, you know? Um, sure. it's like, you know, if you want to make some money, then you make certain decisions. But if you have to water down your content in order to be successful, that's a different thing. I don't think just, you know, making money is necessarily in and of itself selling out, but if you have something of substance and you're gonna water it down in order to make more money, that's that's a different story. Yeah, that's, that's the real crime. Uh, well, why don't we take a quick break and then when we come back, we will have more to talk about. So we'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody. We hope you had a nice break. Uh, we hope over your break, you, uh, you, you stayed aware of what you're doing and what you're showing other people. Absolutely. In general. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> um, wow. All right. Well, let's talk a little bit about Notorious B.I.G., uh, who is being inducted into the hall this year. There has not been a hip-hop inductee in the hall for about three years, and the hall has a very narrow door for hip-hop inductees. It seems like maybe one can get in uh, per year, and one doesn't always get in. But this was, this was Biggie's first year of eligibility, and so the fact that he got in is a, FYE. He's an FYE, a first year eligible. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I, it's, it's good, but the relationship between the hall and hip hop continues to be frustrating because there's a lot of, there's a lot of line jumping, so to speak, if there is a chronological. Well, and I mean, you know, you brought up Africa Vambada, who has been nominated before, yeah? He's been nominated once before, yeah, and has back in 2008 and has not returned to the ballot. Same with also mentioned Eric B and Rakim have been on the ballot 
And the biggest, you know, the most frequent nominee appearance without getting inducted at the hall is LL Cool J, who has been nominated five times and can't seem to make it through. So the the order obviously is out of out of whack when you talk about rap's first solo superstar that was LL, but you know Tupac and Notorious B.I.G. have gotten in before. It's a it's a bit of a mess. It's you know it's either really it's either really good or bad because Run D.M.C. and Public Enemy got in immediately the way they should, but then there's this there's this other side where you know in De La Soul and and Tribe have not been on a ballot and it's it's a it's a really messy situation well i think you know it's the rock and roll hall of fame so uh it's not the hip-hop hall of fame yeah Um, if it's the hip-hop hall of fame then you know then it's a different story but you're basically including you know rappers in a hall of fame that's uh, devoted to another genre that some people think of as kind of all-encompassing. Um, I don't think of rock and roll that way, but I think there's certainly a generation of people who think, you know, that's the center, but it's not, nor has it ever been the center to me. So, you know, if there's a hip-hop hall of fame and, you know, people like Kim aren't in it, then you can't really take that seriously. If it's a rock and roll hall of fame, then, you know, you have to assume that, their motives might be different than the motives of a hip hop hall of fame. So again, it's like how much um, cultural clout does rock and roll have? And if rock and roll is deciding, you know, what qualifies as significant hip hop, I think you perhaps have to take that with a grain of salt. I think there's a lot of people who would say, oh, they need to expand and they need to include more genres or whatever. And and that's certainly a a fair argument, but I don't think, you know, hip hop's losing any sleep over the fact that the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame has not gotten it right in terms of acknowledging the best of this uh, hip hop genre. Yeah, and you do sometimes see when the hip hop artists are inducted, that it does it means something but it means something different it means like an acceptance like a a a seat at the table like ice cube was very outspoken about this is like damn right we're rock and roll because anytime a hip-hop artist is inducted gene simmons or some fucker comes by and gets really upset Uh, but he he was really adamant and you know chuck d same same thing you know, and he, he emphasized the connection to the blues, which he sees as what kind of kind of creates the umbrella for rock and roll, or at least in terms of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And so it's, it's always interesting to see how the artists themselves interpret this honor, because you could really go either way. And I mean, I, I don't know how... I, I don't know how Biggie Smalls would feel about his induction, but I get the sense that Diddy is into it because i think he likes honors i get the sense that he he likes uh, any opportunity to talk i mean it's sort of like any honor or any form of recognition i mean you know if you're an artist and you put effort into your work you want people to embrace it and acknowledge it and respect it and so you know an induction into the rock and roll hall of fame is an embrace it's an acknowledgement and it's an acceptance so at a real sort of basic level i mean i think you can understand how that would be significant and meaningful um it's just not you know wholly 
determinative, as we might say. Um, you know, that doesn't determine your overall legacy or significance or importance. I guess the point is I'm getting at is just because the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame includes you doesn't mean you're important. In many ways, Biggie's induction means more for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame than it does for Biggie's legacy. Biggie's legacy is cemented. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame looks perhaps more inclusive by acknowledging Biggie, but if they don't put Biggie in their Hall of Fame, it doesn't make any difference in terms of what Biggie's career meant as an artist. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's still a superstar. And yeah, it is. It's like they get clout from him. He does not get clout from them. And also they, you know, really went out of their damn way to talk about what an inclusive class this year was uh, because they put in two dead people of color. Or no, three, right? There's a member of the Doobie Brothers, yes. the bass player. Yeah. Uh, if you, you, you have to look really hard. You have to like dig around through all the, push all the white people away and the Doobie Brothers to find the black guy. But yeah. The Doobie Brothers were, you know, who I like, the Doobie Brothers were playing black music though. So, <laughs> yeah. I mean, that was what, that was their thing, especially in the seventies. Um, and then Michael McDonald, you know, as a solo artist, his baritone was not quite as slick as mine, but it was pretty slick, but you know, um, you know, so it's interesting that it would be the Doobie Brothers considering the music that they would play during uh, the height of their career. Yeah. Um, is the is the black member of the Doobie Brothers still alive? He is uh, Tyron Porter. He's yeah. So <sighs> I'm like just somebody who gets a ballot who's still living. They <laughs> I know. It, 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 that is a we, uh, a frustrating trend for the Hall as they tend to put in like in the past few years it's been Nina Simone and Sister Rosetta Tharp and Donna Summer and Tupac and you know the the acknowledging of these black artists after they've died. And it's, you know, but that way they don't have to worry about them coming to the ceremony. <laughs> you know, it's like we can acknowledge them and do some kind of video tribute. Mm -hmm. We don't have to have them in our midst. That's one way to look at it. Yeah. Well, and, and we hope for there to be, you know, soon more acknowledgement of black artists who are alive. You know, Shaka Khan has been on the ballot many times, has not gotten in. Jay-Z becomes eligible next year. You know, the, we can hold out hope, but that's usually not a smart thing to do when it comes to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Not looking likely. Todd, when, we, uh, when you were talking about kind of being there at the beginning of hip hop, you know, then it's like, you know, fast forward 15 years or so till Biggie Smalls uh, debuts. What did you think the first time you heard his music, if you can remember? Oh, I can remember vividly. You know, I, I used to uh, I used to love videos. I, I was really into watching videos. And videos by the 90s had become short films in a way, the best of them. You know, there's that moment when MTV starts identifying the directors of music videos that I think is kind of a transition point um, because you're treating it like a film. Um, now it's not just, you know, the music artist, it's the person who directed the uh, video. So I was, I was actually on the phone um, with someone and I had videos on, I would just put videos on between MTV, Yo! MTV Raps and, you know, BET and like, I just have videos on in the background at the time. And I was talking to somebody on the phone and I saw, but the, I had the sound down, but I was, you know, I was on the phone, videos on, and I saw 
the video for Juicy, um, but I couldn't hear it. But the visuals caught my attention. And I told whoever I was talking to to hold on. And I turned up the volume. And I'm like, who is this dude? And so you wait, you know, to the end of the video and it's like Notorious B.I.G. And I'm like, oh man, this dude is hot. Like, you know, the vibe of the video um, is juicy, of course, is the video I'm looking at. I made the change from a common thief to up close and personal with Robin Leach. And I'm far from cheap. I smoke soap with my peeps all day. Spread love, it's the Brooklyn way. The Moet and Alan From that point forward, it's just like, you know, all these rumors about when the whole album was going to drop. And, you know, back then people paid attention to release dates and there's this big buildup. And, you know, so from that point on, I'm like, oh, this dude is, this dude is hot. And then, you know, I, I was at the same time, you know, Craig Mack had come out just a bit before that. And Craig Mack and Biggie are on Bad Boy. And I knew who, you know, Sean Puffy Combs was, Sean Combs at the time. I remember being at a, a party. I was at a party at a place that was called uh, Atlas, which I don't know what the name of that place is now. It's right next door to the Wiltern Theater. And um, I remember seeing Puff at this party. And this is how long ago it was. He was just like, you know, kind of walking around doing his thing. Most people didn't even know who he was. Um, he wasn't famous at this moment, but he was about to pop. And not long after that, you know, Ready to Die drops, and I probably listened to that tape and CD for maybe a year and a half straight before I stopped. And <laughs> yeah. I always went back to it, but Big was, uh, I mean, you know, the first time I heard him rap from that video um, and I saw his vibe and his persona, I started paying attention because, you know, I like what I saw. I like what I heard. What is, I'm trying to remember the Juicy video. I, what I remembered was they're like, they're, he's by a pool. And, oh, I don't um, think I've ever seen the Juicy video, if I'm being honest. You know, um, I mean, it was all a dream. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, birthdays was the worst days. And when I heard all that, it's like, that's, you know, that's, that's where my head was. And they're by the pool and, you know, Runches, interviews by the pool, considered a fool because I dropped out of high school. Stereotypes of a black male misunderstood, but it's still all good. So I'm hearing all that. You know, I, I like all this. They're popping champagne and um, it was just celebration. I think that's what caught my attention. And then when I heard, you know, when I heard his flow and, and what he was saying, you know, I love that M2 May sample anyway from back when Juicy first came out. So it was, it was, everything about it appealed to me. And from that point on, I started just checking for big every opportunity I got. At that time, they, that was probably at the very beginning, there wasn't quite yet a East Coast, West Coast feud, but it was bubbling up within the next few years. Did that, did you take, I mean, did you take any side or was there any preference for you with I mean, those artists? You know, I'm, I'm from Detroit, but I moved to uh, LA in the early 90s a bit before, a couple years before, you know, Biggie's album dropped. But I'm in LA, this is like, you know, Rodney King riots and then The Chronic dropped right after that. 
you know, I remember the first time I saw, just like seeing Big for the first time, when I saw the uh, video for Deep Cover and I saw this real skinny dude, you know, from Long Beach. Yeah, and you don't stop. Cause it's one late seven on an undercover car. Yeah, and you don't stop. Cause it's one late seven on an undercover car. Creep with me as I crawl through the hood. Maniac, lunatic, calling Snoop Eastwood. Kicking dust as I bust fuck peace. And, you know, I knew about Dre from N.W.A. before that, but I'm like, who is this Snoop Doggy Dog? And, yeah, you know, Snoop, I mean, you know, from that point forward, from deep cover, you know, the chronic and then doggy style, I mean, Snoop just had the game in a chokehold with this new style and, you know, Dre's beats. And I'm living in L.A. now, and so I was really connected to all that culture. I mean, I, I remember being at, a party again, um, a lot of parties at that time. Sure. And, uh, <laughs> not like now time, no parties well, now, a lot not, of parties not, then. Well, not not for me anyway. But I remember seeing Dre and Snoop and Suge Knight at the Century Club, this private party, the Century Club in Century City. I would be, any party where Suge Knight is, I feel like I would be suddenly well, be on is, edge. This is what, what I'm saying is none of that that would later develop had happened yet. Mm -hmm. So it was like, oh, okay, that's Suge Knight. And that's, you know, he runs Death Row Records. And that's Dre and that's Snoop. It was just, it wasn't a thing, you know. You might say it was nothing but a G thing, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, let you, I'll let you. Thank you. Um, <laughs> Thank you for letting me have it. Thank you for letting me have it. I appreciate it. Um, um, you know, I guess what I'm getting at in both of these instances is like I'm at parties and, you know, Puff is at one, uh, Snoop and Dre and Sugar at another. It just wasn't a thing. And then not too long after that, it was. Big says, you know, I live out there, so don't go there, right? So he's talking about like the East. Well, I'm from Detroit, but I'm living in LA, so I, I gotta rep the West just on GP. But I like Big. You know, and I wasn't going to stop liking Big because he was East Coast. I knew other people who were, like, dismissive of anybody from the East Coast. I'm like, nah, I, I like Big. And then Nas and Wu-Tang dropped, and I'm like, okay, I can, you know, I can get with this. They're not on the West Coast. I rep that. I still got respect for these artists, you know, from other parts of the country. You know, and then it started getting real thick. And I'm a competitive person. I like beef. I like shit. I like confrontation. That's amusing to me. Okay. So, you know, at first it was kind of harmless, you know, should get the source awards. Like that shit was funny. Yeah, um, to for me, sure. All in the video. I mean, that shit was hilarious to me. Um, and then it got to a point where it wasn't funny anymore. You know, I remember since we're talking about this, I'd be remiss not to tell this story, but I moderated this panel at the New Art uh, theater in Santa Monica, and it was a panel about black exploitation movies. So this is the mid '90s, and you also have all these hip hop movies at the time. And black exploitation is back in vogue because of rappers referencing black exploitation movies in their songs. And Pulp Fiction had dropped, so Tarantino's referencing it. And, and I'm hosting this panel with people like Ron O'Neill, the star of Superfly, and Max Julian, the star of Mac, and Afterwards, after this panel, a group of people wanted to go to the most stereotypical place imaginable to 
you know, eat, Roscoe's House of Chicken and Waffles. And we're sitting there and all of a sudden, this caravan pulls up and there's like a long stretch limo, one of those old school stretch limos from back in the day. And a bunch of people start getting out. And then all of a sudden this drop top Mercedes pulls up and it drops down and it's Pac, it's Tupac. Um, Suge had actually got him out of jail the day before that. And Pac's bodyguards like walk up into Roscoe's and basically show everybody they're strapped and Pac walks in and everybody is like, oh, that's Tupac. And like I said, he just got out of jail the day before. So living in LA during that time, um, you saw things like that. I did anyway. Like I'm seeing Pac eating at Roscoe's. It was just part of being on the scene. So as the East Coast, West Coast thing amped up, me being who I am, like I've been in, around enough people, close enough to the street, like I know the game. If people start talking a certain way, there's a danger that that talk can get out of control. And, you know, I was a bit older than most of the people on that scene. And, and I knew if this conversation keeps going the way it's going, this is not going in well. I didn't know how it was going in, but I'm like, you know, there's a point at which shit talking is humorous. And then there's another point at which it could be dangerous, you know, uh, same thing, make you laugh or make you cry. So mm -hmm. as it started going in a particular direction, I'm like, people need to be careful because this could get out of hand and ultimately it did which is you know the sad part of it but to uh listen to that music and have these you know debates with people friendly debates about east coast west coast it was, mm -hmm. it was just a different time and then it flipped yeah you know you mentioned that juicy was the first song that you heard and that's probably the case for a lot of people uh is that your favorite do you have a favorite uh biggie track um, I don't have a favorite. I mean, I, he rarely put out bad music. I don't know if he put out bad music. There's some songs that I don't love. There are others that I like maybe more. I mean, you know, Juicy is a, like a manifesto. Um, yeah, it really it lays it all out there. If, if and that's, you know, that's the American dream for, for that generation. Um, but, you know, Things done change. Wait for niggas to step up on some fighting shit. We get hyping shit and start fighting shit. So step away with your fist fight ways. Motherfucker, this ain't back in the days, but you don't hear me though. Unbelievable. B-I-G-G-I-E, A-K-A, B-I-G, get it? Biggie, also known as the Bone Appetite. Rappers can't sleep, need sleeping. Big keep. I mean, that whole album's a classic. Yeah. Um, you know, you just put it on. I'm, I'm good. I'm not, I don't need to skip anything. And then yeah. Who Shot You comes out in between that and Life After Death. Who Shot You? Separate the weak from the opposite. Leap hard to creep them Brooklyn streets. It's on, nigga. Fuck all that bickering beef. I can hear sweat trickling. And then Life After Death, like, you know, people don't realize that it's real hard to make one album. That's what I call cut to cut, like where you go from one cut to the next, you don't need to pause or you don't need to skip, skip anything, I should say. Like mm -hmm. when you can drop a, you know, two, two disc and both are hitting like that. I mean, that's, you know, but by that time Big got killed. So it was sad, but at the same time it was, uh, 
it was enjoyable to listen to that music and I'll never forget. I mean, I got so many stories. Um, I was in London, very, very good friend of mine. Um, my brother, uh, I call him my brother. He's like a brother to me. Patrick Smith, Emmy award winning, Grammy award winning, audio engineer, extraordinaire, sound guru. At the time he was uh, handling the sound on uh, Jay Leno. He was there for 20 plus years. And you know, we had this habit if we were traveling, if he was traveling, if I was traveling, we might call each other like from the road and just say, what's up, you know, what's going on. And so I, I flew to London and I got there and I called my friend and I'm like, you know, what's popping? And he's like, you hear about big? And I'm like, nah, what are you, what big? Like, you know, what's up? He's like, he's dead. And I'm like, don't say that. He's like, nah, man, motherfuckers killed him last night at the Peterson Automotive Museum. And Patrick lived not far from the museum. And I'm like, what? And at the time, Tower Records was huge. Like Tower Records was really big. And there was a Tower Records in uh, Piccadilly Circus in London. And I went to Tower Records and they're playing like no Biggie Smalls. And then I realized I'm asking people, they had DJs and nobody knew about it because it was London. And I'm like, man, that's kind of sad, but news didn't travel as fast. And then I went back a day or two later and by that time they knew and they were bumping Biggie around the clock. So these are landmark moments in my life that, that I will never forget, like calling my guy. And he's like, yo, your man is dead. Cause everybody knew how much, you know, I love Biggie, that Biggie was like that dude for me. And so that story, like still to this day, like it connects me you know, my friend, and he's like, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but yeah, this is what happened. So just being in LA, like you, you can't really, you know, the night Pop got shot in Vegas after the Tyson fight, all that's a big part of my life just based on being in LA and what I was doing at the time. Yeah, um, you know, you mentioned being in the same room as as Puff, being in the same room as, as Suge Knight. I'm curious, were you ever in the same room as Big? Not that I know of. Um, okay. That that one I missed out on. Puff, yes. Dre, Snoop, Suge. You know, I've been in documentaries that Snoop narrated and been introduced to Dre and was in Prada in Beverly Hills one afternoon when Puff was uh, doing his thing. Um, you know, <laughs> I mean, I used to run in the Suge at this uh, clothing store in Beverly Hills a uh, few times. So, you know, it's if you live in LA like, yeah. and you move the way that I have moved, you run into these people coincidentally or later based on what I'm doing in my life, like just you're in the same space with them, but not big, it's not big. I didn't have that opportunity. Yeah, it's really similar for us just with um, underground <laughs> alternative comedians. Uh, we're just constantly uh, <laughs> Really, really. You, know, you run in our you people. run in our circles. Yeah, you're you're bound to run into Sarah you're, Silverman. You're bound to you're bound to be in the same room as Nick Kroll once in your life. That's um, <laughs> how it goes. You know, very very similar stories. You know, these that's the streets that we run in. And uh, so the uh, I'm, I'm not I'm not I'm not trying to like floss or high side. Yeah, of course okay. not. I mean, I have, I have been compiling all these stories for a book I plan to write at some point because, you know, it's really, in some ways, for me, it's been 
what I do, like what I do brings me in contact with all kinds of people and has, but also just living in Los Angeles. When I first moved here, it's like, you know, there are all these celebrities, but at the end of the day, you know, they might be in the grocery store. They might be at a restaurant. They Mm -hmm. might be at the dry clean, like, you know, so when I moved here, it was just, it was, I always tell people I had been in LA for literally two weeks and I am sitting in Eddie Murphy's VIP section at a George Clinton concert. Come on. Um, <laughs> like, it's just, you know, so I, I, I'm collecting all these stories to write about them. I don't want to sound like I'm high signing or bragging. No, of course not. not. But it's, that's just been my it's life. It's reality. Oh, and I'm happy to hear it, you know? Yeah, this is great. like someday I'm going to write a book about how I sat by Flea at Cafe Gratitude. So, you know, uh, <laughs> <laughs> things, it can, you know, celebrities are just like us. They're just like us. <laughs> um, if, with like the induction this year of Biggie, do you have any like thought, I mean, I don't even mean to say that you've thought about it at all, but if you have thought about it at all, who would you like to see kind of like be involved in his induction or like if they had had, if people are going to do like tributes to him or stuff, like who would you like to see kind of like out there repping for Biggie? Well, I mean, naturally you'd expect, you'd expect Puff to be, you know, mm-hmm. part yes. of it. Yeah, um, and that's been, that's been confirmed. Uh, I, you know, there's no, no way he's not being involved. I mean, and, and to me, the other person would have to be uh, Jay. But, you know, Lil' Kim, you know, C's. But I Puffin and, and Jay, for sure. You know, sometimes you know, they're not doing a live induction this year, obviously, because of the pandemic. So we're not entirely sure what this, uh, they're, they're still going to do some sort of special, but it's going to be pre-filmed and we don't really know exactly what it's, what it's going to look like. But, you know, often like they did with, with Tupac, you know, they, they had a live tribute with guys like YG and TI kind of generations after Tupac that were obviously influenced by him. Would anyone stick out to you as someone who came who came much after Biggie, but definitely owes something and is like a direct direct descendant? I would say somebody like Ross. Um, Rick Ross. Rick Ross. I mean, the thing about Big, you know, is I mean, Big made being a big dude cool. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, heartthrob, never black and ugly as ever. However, I stay coogee down to the socks. Big transcended like you know the kind of limitations that might have been applied to uh you know people before and not saying that ross is like big but you can't help but think about big's influence when ross you know comes on the scene a while after big is you know been killed um but embodies uh this identity you know of of the big man and also, not only just in his persona, but what he rapped about. I mean, you know. Yeah, although, you know, that stuff with Rick Ross and kind of like him having been working as a parole officer, working yeah. as a correctional officer. Yeah. Yeah. We, don't love, yeah. we don't love it. We don't love it. I mean, look, here's the thing. If in the mid-90s it was revealed that somebody was like formerly a corrections officer and, and had created this false identity, people would react differently to it. By the time Ross came along, all of these sort of myths of like purity in hip hop had I think been exposed in such a way that it's like, okay, it's a persona. I mean, I've always said to people, you shouldn't look at hip hop as 
documentary, you should look at it as fiction, that these rappers created personas and the best of them were able to make you think that the persona was the real person. Ross came along at a certain time where I'm just not looking at it the same way that I was 10, 15, or 20 years earlier. By this point, it's clear this is, you know, a rapper is really like an actor, which is why so, so many, many of them have are made now, the transition yeah. into acting. So I don't, you know, hold that against him. I know a lot of people do, but people would be surprised at, you know, how much uh, has been embellished in the uh, persona of their favorite rappers if they... Well, and know, in some ways, I kind of hope so, <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah, I mean, but that that consciousness in the 90s, people were really caught up in this notion of realism, but realism is an aesthetic. You know, there's a style of realism. Once you go into a studio and start putting it on a record, it's not real because it's not in the street. You're now like trying to capitalize on it. And so it becomes, you know, a cultural product. Um, So I think people had a lot of misconceptions about realism that are more well understood these days and perhaps for a while now. And take it from somebody who goes by the name real. <laughs> I didn't uh, I didn't name myself. That name was given to me, but you know, it's about, it's about uh, keeping it real. Uh, yeah. I always oh, yeah. tell people I was, uh, I was real before people were uh, keeping it real. And I mean, to, to that, yeah. um, it's like, you know, the LA Times did a feature on me. This would have been in 2003. The, they did a long feature on me in the calendar section, and um, they titled it Notorious PhD. I tell you this story because when I was coming up, if you gave yourself a name, people looked at you funny. Oh, yeah. I think that's yes. still true. I think that's still true. Yeah, I think it's still true. <laughs> so some haters who I have encountered will say things like the self-proclaimed Notorious PhD. Um, the LA Times said that it fit, so I like you know rode with it. But I didn't say that. The LA Times said it. I um, feel you. So it's like, on the record, <laughs> in the same way that like you know, real was a name bestowed upon me because I used to have this way that I would greet people, and real was part of the greeting. And eventually, people just started calling me real because it stuck, because I was a real motherfucker. So, um, <laughs> like, so you know, if it fits you, you got to roll with it. But I just wanted to be clear about that, because, you know, I don't want people <laughs> thinking I'm, like, naming myself. These things have been bestowed upon me based on my game. Yes. It, it has been made clear. It's on the record. Uh, real, notorious PhD, Dr. Todd Boyd, whatever we're going to call you. We want to thank you for doing the podcast. We really appreciated you making the time and we had a good time talking to you. This was great. Yeah. I enjoyed it as well. Thanks for having me. Uh, is there anything you would like to plug? I know you're going to be in 75 documentaries in the next two weeks. <laughs> So uh, if, there, if there's 100, anything... 175. Um, <laughs> I mean, you know, I told you I started out as a MC, so I still have a lot of that in me. You know, um, The Good Doctor is on all platforms, you know, 
Twitter, Instagram, Notorious PhD, the undisputed documentary king, um, <laughs> you know, for a long time running, like, you know, documentary king, I rep the crown. Uh, got a lot, of, a, lot of, a lot of documentaries coming up, steady doing interviews. You know, I try to be visible and all over the place, so I'm not hard to find. If you're interested in, like, you know, some serious shit, look me up. All right. Well, you can follow us at Rock Hall Joe, Pod. I'm sorry. You're really going to have to, you're going to have to amp up the plug section yeah, for yourself. I know. Now it's a, it's a lot that. to follow. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, I don't have a ton to work with, but you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Rock Hall Pod. Uh, email us rockhallpod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want Kristen to see that message, you're going to need to specify that somewhere in the email. Please uh, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts. Rate and review us five stars only if it's not five stars it's mean uh thank you to mike lloyd for the logo thank you to yusu kim for the music and thank you to pantheon podcast for hosting us i'm joe quazala i'm Kristen stuttered also known as k stud but that is also a name that was given to me i just want to be clear about that as well and who cares about the rock hall It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.